Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. As we begin that, or you may be seated, um, shall we pray, actually? I'm a little thrown off here. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, we come to you in a world that is turned upside down. Pandemics, national disa- or natural disasters, unrest in our streets, in our heart, in our government. And we confess that we are overwhelmed and we grow angry, we grow anxious. We don't know what to do. And often, like Job's friends, we say foolish things, unloving things, things that are not true. We listen to the wrong places, to the wrong people. We get our cues from our leaders, from talking heads, from news outlets, from social media. And we fail to lift our eyes up to the hills from where our strength comes. For our strength only comes from you, Father. We are broken. And only you can heal us. We don't have the answers. Only you have the wisdom that we need. We don't know the way. Only you can lead us. Father, I I don't know what to pray. When I see the destruction in our hearts, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, in our institutions, Lord, and I lament, how long, O Lord, will our brothers be persecuted? How long, O Lord, will they be treated less than a man? How long, O Lord, will our white brothers and sisters stay silent? How long will we be in denial and unrepentance? Father, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts. Give us ears to hear. That we may love our brothers and sisters. That we will fight injustice. That we will love mercy. We will walk humbly with our God. The gospel demands it. For God so loved the world. Father, we need you. Our world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has marred our world. Forgive us our sins of commission and our sins of omission. May we be agents for change, bringing the truth of the gospel into the darkness. breaking up the strongholds of sin in this world, knowing that Christ will come and restore this world in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem as it should be, and as we work and and pray and move and serve. 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters within our congregation. Father, I specifically lift up Andy Rossi to you right now as he is in Baptist beaches and his great pain in his head, unexplained pain. Father, I pray that you would give the doctors clarity about what is causing this incredible pain. But Father, I pray that as Andy is in that bed today, that he will call out to you, that his faith will be strengthened in such a way that he will see Christ new and afresh. That though he suffers for a little while, his suffering will be used to strengthen his faith and to glorify Christ who has gave his life for him and redeemed him. Father, we need you. Open our eyes as we open the text and we hear your word proclaimed. Only your spirit can take these words and change our hearts and plant them deep and bring forth the fruit of good work and the fruit of the spirit that all may see and give glory to our, our Father in heaven. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. When you hear the, the word greatness, what do you think greatness looks like? Is it Michael Jordan hitting the shot that gave him his sixth world championship? His repeat, three-peat? Is it Michael Phelps winning 28 Olympic medals in the pool, 23 of which were gold? Or is it George Salty? Some of you, like myself, probably don't know who George Salty is, but he is the definition of greatness. The great British-Hungarian conductor who won 31, count them, 31 Grammys. Or it is, is it, in the ancient world, the namesake great, Alexander the Great, who established the largest empire in the ancient world. When we think of greatness, you can't help but think of names like Brady and Belichick, Ali, Nicholas, and Babe in the sports world. You, can't, you think of actors and actresses like Heston and Hepburn, Hanks and Streep in the acting world. Musicians like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Elvis or Dylan, Michael Jackson or Aretha Franklin. In the world of silent science, you have Einstein and Newton and Curry. You have visionaries that have impacted the world and their people, MLK and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Writers and poem, poets like Walt Whitman and Shakespeare, Tolkien and Austin. And presidents in our own country, you have Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. All of these men and women accomplished great things in their fields and in their world and for their, for their nations and people. But when we think of greatness, how is greatness manifested in our ordinary lives? 
more importantly, what does greatness look like in the eyes of Jesus? This morning I want to be able to see, as Mark tells us, that greatness in Christ's kingdom is not found in what we do, but who we serve. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is not found in what we do, but who we serve. That we serve with humility, and that we serve the humble. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is not found in what we do, but who we serve. By serving with humility and serving the humble. This morning we begin by looking at uh, our call to greatness by serving, like Jesus, with humility. You notice in the beginning of our text, in verse 30, it says, Mark tells us, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he, Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is the second great prediction of Jesus' death. Another one will be coming in Mark chapter 10. Uh, but Jesus... It came as no surprise to him that he would die, that he would be betrayed, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again. In fact, it's the reason he came. We're going to see this, the great thesis of the book of Mark. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus once again reveals to his disciples who, as we see continually throughout the book of Mark, they don't get it. They don't really understand who Jesus is until the end. The crowds don't know. The religious leaders don't understand. Uh, Only the narrator and the demons know the true identity of who Jesus is. But once again, Jesus tells his disciples that the Son of Man will suffer, he will be killed, And he will rise again. And we notice this prediction. It says Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. This is not an accident, though. This is not a a terrible evil that's been perpetuated by ruthless men. This wasn't the plan gone off the rails that God sat back and said, Oh, this is not how it's supposed to be. This betrayal... Murder was according to the plan of God before the foundations of the earth. And notice in verse 31 it says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. This word to be delivered is known as a divine passive. A divine passive. In other words, it's a reference to God without explicitly using the name of God. So if you were to alternatively translate this verse, you could say this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered, notice, by God into the hands of men and they will kill him. When truth be told, when we understand the plan of God, it was God, not Judas, who would deliver Jesus into the hands of evil men. The death of Jesus was not a tragic accident, but it was a divine appointment. 
This is the very understanding of what the Isaiah the prophet foretold some 400 or 700 years before. The verses that Jeremy read for us this morning. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That's the problem. But notice the remedy. And the Lord has laid on him, suffering servants, the iniquity of us all. The plan of redemption was to deliver Christ as an atoning sacrifice to redeem God's people. The death of Christ was foreknown, foreordained, and foretold. He was not, and Jesus, as he is telling this, is not naive about the intentions of the religious leaders and the Romans. He knows what they want. Mark has already showed that they have in their disputes, the the Pharisees are plotting his death. Remember, you can't heal a man on the Sabbath, but you can plot the death of a man on the Sabbath. Jesus was not ignorant about the unimaginable cruelty he would face on the cross. And he did not assume that he would be rescued at the last moment. Jesus knew full well what lie at the end of the road to Golgotha. His destination was Jerusalem. His destiny was the cross. And though he was crowned as Lord of the universe, he humbled himself. And notice as Paul in Philippians said, not only did he serve with humility, not only did he serve with humility, but with obedience and love. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul speaking to the church at Philippi. Who was also, who, who, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God a thing to be grasped. He did not demand his right as the image of the invisible God. Fully God, fully man, dwelt among us and manifest the glory of God. He did not demand his rights as God. But notice what it says He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Not just loving the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and his neighbor as himself. Not the act of obedience, but the passive obedience to the plan of the Almighty God to redeem mankind by becoming obedient to the point of death. And not a natural death of a king in luxury, but the death of a common criminal on a cross. Brothers and sisters, we see humility because the one who who holds all things together dwelt among his creation. The one through whom... um, for whom all things were created, serve his creation. The one by whom all things were created sacrificed himself to redeem his creation. Jesus humbly embraced the divine plan of the cross with both humility and self-sacrifice. Why then? Why did he do this? To redeem the lives of of his people. Oshabark, the way of the master is the way of humility and self-sacrifice. 
Notice, Jesus doesn't demand his due as Lord of creation. He humbled himself to dwell with his creation. He didn't protect his rights as the Messiah, but he sacrificed his rights to save his creation. The greatness of Jesus will be proclaimed for all eternity. A song whose melody does not simply extol his might and his power, his cleverness of his wisdom, or the allure of his charm. The song of heaven is the song that echoes the greatness of his humility and his self-sacrifice. Notice Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. This song of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This scroll being the redeeming plan of God. And the nations wept because nobody could redeem the, uh, and, and, and uh, initiate the plan of God. But the Son of Man... And it's not just his greatness. It says, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The greatness of Christ is that he humbled himself to serve a lost and dying world. Ocean Park, if our Lord and Savior would humble himself and self-sacrificially serve, why would we think that we're exempt? The pattern he laid forth in his kingdom is a pattern of humility, a pattern of self-sacrifice, and a pattern of service. Just as Jesus did, all who follow Jesus are called, as we see in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, to deny oneself and to die to self in order to serve in humble self-sacrifice to further the kingdom of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. That is the plan and that is, the, uh, that is modeled in the humble self-sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus tells us this is going to happen. But notice the response of the disciples. They don't get it. Notice verse 32. But they did not understand the same, and they were afraid to ask. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is dangerous. This isn't the first time that Jesus uh, told of his betrayal and his death and his resurrection. And this isn't the first time that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. The first time was back in chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus says this very same thing. And then Peter pulls him aside and it says he rebuked Jesus. Peter, in essence, said, this is not how Messiahs talk. Stop it. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, Peter, stop doing the work of Satan and follow me. The second time in Mark chapter 9 that we're reading this morning, the disciples still failed to understand. But rather than oppose Jesus blatantly, 
their fear, their apprehension, their ignorance, their reluctance, their indifference cause them not to ask. Their silence was dangerous. Brothers and sisters, failing to understand Jesus left them in opposition to Jesus, his kingdom, and his work. And this is a very sobering reality that all of us must come to grips with. If we don't listen to Jesus, if we don't understand Jesus, if we don't see clarity about what Jesus is teaching, we will be opposing Jesus, not following him. We'll be walking in selfish pride, not in humility. That we will not be, we will be seeking self-promotion in the name of Jesus, not self-sacrifice because of what Jesus has done. It's the very thing that the disciples were doing throughout the book of Mark. While Jesus was walking the road to Calvary, where he would humbly lay down his life. The disciples were pushing and shoving and jostling to secure a place of honor in the procession behind them. Why? Because they failed to understand the reason that Christ came. To seek and to save that which was lost by giving his life by laying down his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, greatness in Christ's kingdom is not in what we do, but who we are. When we serve, like Jesus, with humility. But not only that, that we serve the humble. Notice as the the narrative continues in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, are you dis- what were you discussing on the way? Like Jesus didn't know. But the disciples kept silent. I can see him at this point. They're probably not making eye contact. They're looking around. They're that awkward moment when we don't really want to say what we were talking about. They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Once again, we shake our heads at the disciples because we know we do the very same thing. As Jesus walked towards Jerusalem, the disciples debated in their ranks who would be the greatest. Why? Because status was central to one's honor in ancient societies. You even have ancient Greek writers and rabbis who uh, would often debate who would be able to sit closest to the Father in heaven. Who would be the closest And I think the disciples, realizing they had the inside track with Jesus, he was kind of a big deal, and we're his inner circle. So who's going to sit closest to Jesus when glory comes, when that kingdom comes? See, they didn't understand at all Jesus' prediction about his betrayal and his death. All they understood was that Jesus has incredible power over sickness and disease and evil spirits and nature and even death. And like the crowds, they wanted to get something out of Jesus. They wanted a premium spot in the new heavens. 
And they knew that Jesus had great glory because Peter, James, and John had witnessed this on the, in the Mount of Transfiguration, the shining radiance of God's glory, Moses and Elijah attesting to who he was, the uh, voice from heaven, this is my son, listen to him. They knew Jesus was a big deal. And they knew they were closely associated with Jesus, so they had to figure these things out before it became a reality because, you know, you hate to be disorganized. They, the disciples, knew Jesus was great, and they wanted to be great. The problem is they didn't realize why Jesus was great. They wanted distinction and recognition. They wanted honor and prestige. They wanted rank and standing. They wanted the people to know their names, and Jesus was their ticket. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not to be used for our end and our desired ends. But far too often, people who say they love the gospel do that very thing. They didn't understand, even though they were in the inner circle and they heard Jesus on a daily basis, they did not understand that Jesus' greatness, what, why Jesus was great, nor what made a person great in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus knew that the puffed-up ambition of the disciples would never allow them to take up the cross and follow Jesus, a suffering servant Messiah. And so, therefore, he showed them grace, and he sat them down, and he began to teach them. And notice what he taught them in verse 35. And Jesus sat them down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first... I think a, a valid way you could say this, if anybody would be great, he must be last of all and servant of all. And have you ever had those moments when somebody drops a bombshell on you and you're like, that's not what I was expecting? Maybe at work, in your family, whatever it may be, in a conversation. Whoa, where did that come from? I imagine that this rush overcame the disciples. Like, this is not what I expected. Greatness, Jesus taught in his kingdom, is not found in trophies or accomplishments. It's not achieved by self-promotion and self-discipline or self-deprivation. Greatness is not measured by applause, degrees, or contributions. Greatness is determined how is not deter, um, is not determined how well you are well you are known, or what you can produce, and greatness is not reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Greatness is actually found in the kingdom of Christ and how well you defer to others, how you go to the end of the line, how well you serve others. But the service of Christ calls us is not the kind that actually benefits us. Because often we think of, I'm going to serve in order to get something out of it. Like a, a waiter at a fancy restaurant, like a Ruth Chris or a Calford Chop House. One of those really expensive things when you think, wow, 20% of this bill, that's a big one. That's a good night's work to serve. The service that Christ calls to is not 
service so we can get something out of it. The service that Christ calls us to is service that exalts others and causes our name to be forgotten. I work part-time at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary here at the Jacksonville campus as I do mentored ministry where seminarians plug into local churches. I have the privilege of hearing stories of men who have um, answered the call to ministry. And this week I, I was speaking with two men who have, they have told us about their experience, their calling to seminary, how they have forfeited lucrative and noteworthy positions both in the corporate world and in the military to pursue full-time ministry as servants of Christ and His kingdom. And they both know that they will never achieve greatness in the eyes of the world who consider them fools for what they have turned away. Instead, they are pursuing greatness in Christ's kingdom by becoming last in the world's eyes. And why do they do that? Because they are convinced that greatness is found in making Christ known and doing what they need to do to become a servant of all. Ocean Park, the mo Ocean Park, the most common and ordinary the task, the greater the opportunity to visibly manifest the love of Christ. If the Lord of all creation can serve his creation to the point of death, we must follow his example. Greatness is not achieved by finding the corner off or by earning the corner the corner office by having the highest rank on your chest, by having name recognition in your field, or receiving the praise of the critics. Greatness is found when your service puts you last in line and causes, your name, uh, causes you to forfeit the seat of honor and renders you anonymous. Why? Because it is making Christ great and making his name great. It's there when the world forgets your name and wonders what is wrong with you, that you are beginning to pursue greatness in Christ's kingdom. Serving others is how believers imitate the example of, of Jesus in his service. But Jesus, in his teaching, brings an example before the disciples that 21st century readers may not fully understand. Notice verse 36, and it says, He took a child and put the child in their midst. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now again, as 21st century readers, we miss this. Jesus, in this passage, is not telling us to be like a child. He's calling us to embrace people who, like a child in the first century, have no rank, have no power, and have no influence. Like a child in the first century. The content, context of this is that people in the first century, they simply weren't sentimental about their um, children as they are today. Their lives were not lived for their children. Their children worked. Or their children died in infancy, 
and childhood. They were not regarded as especially obedient or trusting or simple or innocent or pure or unselfish conscious or humble. The children had no power, they had no status, and they had few rights. A child was dependent, vulnerably, entirely subject to the authority of the Father, one commentator says. And just as Jesus chooses such one to represent those who are needy and lowly. Jesus is teaching us that his honor-seeking disciples, that greatness in Christ's kingdom is not service to the godly, to the wise, to the mature, to the people that can uh, give us back and honor our service. That true greatness is service to all, to the poor who can't give back, to the marginalized, to the forgotten, to the downtrodden, to the oppressed, to the abused, to the difficult, to the unappreciative, to those who cannot benefit us at all. Jesus says if his disciples want to be great in God's kingdom, they must learn to be humble servants to the humble. Only when his followers serve without the status, they will receive Jesus and the one who sent him, the Father. Why do we serve the child? Why do we reach out to the least of these, the vulnerable, the poor, the oppressed? Why do we do that? Because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Remember this model that Jesus gives. One of the songs that we sing is, All I Have is Christ. I think we sang this the last couple weeks. I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. Notice, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state, my humble state, my state with no influence, no power, no status, no ability. And you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. If Jesus did this for you and me, with no benefit to his own, an actual humble self-sacrifice, how can we put conditions on our service to reach the humble and the poor, and the downtrodden. If Jesus did it, we can't say, I'll only serve if it fits into my schedule, if it's comfortable, if it doesn't interfere with my money, if I don't have to do what I don't like to do. As long as I'm in control, I'll serve. If it makes me look good and people notice me and I get my minimum hours, if I like the people that I serve. 
Brothers and sisters, we have no right to put conditions on any service in Christ's kingdom. For Christ put no conditions on his service. He humbled himself to save you and and I while we were hopelessly lost in our sin. Therefore, we are called to demonstrate the love and the mercy and the grace that we have received by serving all people. Not only the powerful and the influential and the people that will honor us and pay us back for our service. It's not customer service. It's Christ-like service. To the weak. To the humble. No matter if they have power or influence. No matter if they've made good choices with their life or foolish, destructive choices. No matter if they're entered into our country legally or illegally. No matter if they are appreciative or they expect a handout. We are all called to serve all people. Whoever the Lord brings in our path or leads us to find. Ocean Park, as a church in the Reformed tradition, we believe that we contribute nothing to our salvation except our sin. Even the faith in our hearts is a gift from God. If our salvation is 100% grace, from top to bottom, east to west, inside to out, and I, it is grace alone, there is nowhere that Christ cannot send us. There is nothing that Christ cannot ask us to do. There is no one that Christ cannot ask us to serve. Do you believe that? Or do you say, this Jesus thing, I'll only go as far as I have time or as I have comfort? And if you do, you must see greatness in Christ's kingdom by serving the humble, the lowly, the oppressed, the downtrodden, because you are humble and lowly and oppressed and downtrodden by sin. Even when nobody notices you and nobody recognizes you and nobody appreciates you because it is exactly what Christ has done for you. And when we understand this, this changes how we live and who we live for. Ocean Park, I ask you this morning, Are you serving the humble, the least of these? Are you receiving the lowly and the forgotten and the vulnerable? Or is your service dependent on what you can receive in return? Like a politician who visits a charity to serve for five minutes while the cameras are watching. Or are you serving like Jesus who laid his honor and his rights aside to redeem an undeserving people, you and me, from sin and death? With the conviction of this, that greatness in Christ's kingdom is not found in what we do, but who we serve. By serving with humility, and serving the humble, so that the world may see our service and recognize not you and I, but Christ in me. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you in a world that is fueled by self-pride, 
people who claim the name of Jesus are not living for Jesus, but using Jesus as an ornament to their own self-pride and self-promotion and self-preservation. Father, may the truth of the gospel have such a profound impact on us that when we were strangers and aliens and orphans, Christ came and rescued us. The Father adopted us into his family before we even were aware of our existence and called us sons and daughters and is working by the power of his Spirit to bring that family resemblance resemblance that we would act and love and look like Jesus by serving with humility the humble. May it be true of my heart and the hearts of Ocean Park and all who claim the name of Jesus that we may be satisfied and you may be glorified. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.